Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 124. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you of a few things. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. And of course, you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just go out and search for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to go search for all those things, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you have all of my social media buttons. You can click on the Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube icon and find me that way. While you're at brianmcclanahan.com, don't forget to give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders in American History, and also a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You'll get on my email list when you do that. And if you're on brianmcclanahan.com and you want to support the podcast and what I do, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support, and you can throw a few pennies my way. Anything that you do uh, contribute does help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going, and help keep me producing this content. So I appreciate all of your support. Also, don't forget that my How Alexander Hamilton's Screwed Up America is out for purchase now. You can buy an autographed copy on my webpage. Just uh, look for that at the top of the page under Books. You can also find it on Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes & Noble. And if you do purchase a copy, please go on out and leave a review on Amazon.com or elsewhere, Goodreads, wherever you like to leave book reviews, the more the merrier. And again, if you do like this podcast, also please re- leave a review on iTunes. Again, the more the merrier there as well. Okay, today's episode of the Brian McClanahan Show is actually based on something that happened yesterday. So uh, this is some um, you know current contemporary stuff. It actually has to deal with the Ingram angle, which uh, pre- which premiered last night on Fox News. Now, I don't particularly watch Fox News. Um, Laura Ingram who has this new show, and there was a lot of buzz about the new show and, and what it was going to be like. And, of course, she has her first guest, which is General Kelly. And General Kelly made some statements that uh, caught the eye of the traditional leftist historians and, of course, the Washington Post jumped all over that today uh, in a piece entitled, quote, Historians Respond to John F. Kelly's Civil War Remarks, colon, Strange, Sad, Wrong. Okay, so what did Kelly say? What did General John Kelly say to Laura Ingram last night that produced so much angst and hand-wringing and all these problems among the historical profession, and they get so upset, and they just can't stand it anymore. Oh, and they get they get so spasmatic, and oh, and they just they go into convulsions. What did he actually say that caused all this angst and hand-wringing and, 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 and these problems? Well, this is what he said. Quote, this is, what, this is General Kelly again. Quote, I will tell you that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man. He was a man that gave up his country to fight for his state, 
which 150 years ago was more important than country. It was always loyalty to state first back in those days. Now it's different today. But the lack of an ability to compromise led to the Civil War, and men and women of good faith on both sides made their stand where their conscience had them make their stand. End quote. And that has just upset a lot of people. I'm sure it upset Kevin Cruz, but of course I can't see that anymore because he blocked me on Twitter. I'm sure if you went out there, though, and found it, I'm sure he went into uh, all kinds of, of uh, just spasmatic fits because of General Kelly saying this. It's just hilarious. This guy gets so uptight. Uh, and again, Princeton is paying him to tweet, so I'm sure he tweeted a lot about this. But uh, we, we have other uh, Ivy League professors who are also getting paid to make stupid comments. And so I want to start with one of those stupid comments. Look, first of all, this is like taking candy from a baby, this article on, on Halloween. Uh, it's so good. It's so juicy. I just have to rip it all apart. So you've got uh, David Blight, who I've already torn apart in uh, just the last podcast, in fact, or two podcasts ago, I should say, Race and Reunion. I was asked, uh, where is my penetrating review of Blight's stupid book, Race and Reunion? Well, I gave it to you. So here we have David Blight again out there saying this. But there are some things that are just not true, and we've got to point that out. Like everything David Blight decided to say in this particular piece. Okay, so uh, <laughs> let's go all the... Yeah, I agree, Blight. Uh, we got to say things. we got to point things out that just aren't true. Uh, and uh, we have to understand, and this is where you get into memory studies, and his, which is a stupid field. Again, memory is history, so we're, we're, it's history studies. I mean, this is... It's so ridiculous what we've gotten to in uh, the historical profession uh, that we even have someone like David Blight being popular at all. But it shows you how bad the historical profession actually is. David Blight should be a marginal figure uh, in anything. He really should not be the, the quote-unquote great historian that he's the esteemed historian at Yale that he's considered to be. So you have a Yale historian, David Blight, and you have a Columbia historian, Stephanie McCurry, uh, who wrote a book entitled Confederate Reckoning, Politics and Power in the Civil War South. She also wrote, a, uh, her, her earliest work was actually on gender studies in the South. So you can see where that's going to go when you have somebody like that uh, who's doing gender studies uh, in, in, uh, in women's roles in the, in the uh, antebellum South. So uh, where are we going to go with that? Uh, that should be clear. So let's look at uh, what these two esteemed historians had to say about General Kelly's uh, speech, or I should not his speech, but his talk with, uh, with Laura Ingram, and then I'll get into what they say and, and how wrong they actually are. So first, let's start with Stephanie McCurry. You're going to have certain things that she's going to say that you could just check off the list of saying, well, this is the attack. They're, they're, they're pulling out their little, their little playbook. And what, what words can we use? What trigger words can we use to get the left all riled up? What, and we'll use their own term, what dog whistle words can we use to get the left all riled up about what General Kelly said? So here we go. This is Stephanie McCurry. Quote, this, that statement could have been given by former Confederate General Jubal early in 1880. Uh, okay, so let's, let's just slice and dice this for a second. Jubal Early is the guy that the uh, people like Blight and McCurry and others often point out as someone who was responsible for the quote-unquote lost cause narrative because Jubal Early was very much involved in the uh, 
postbellum period, particularly the late 19th century, in pushing what they consider to be a false narrative about the war. So there's check number one. If you don't know what she's, why she's getting at there and why she's bringing up Jubal Early, well, that's why, because uh, Jubal Early is seen as the guy. And, of course, she's actually basing this on David Blight's stupid book uh, because he spends a lot of time talking about Jubal Early. Uh, but so did other people. I mean, you have Gaines Foster's Ghost of the Confederacy, which is actually predated Blight by about 30 years and was actually a better book. Uh, it wasn't any, any more reasonable or any more unbiased, but it was more uh, scholarly and uh, had a lot more detail in it. But regardless, uh, th- this, is, this is what they do. So they're going to pull Jubal Early out and say, well, here we got Jubal Early, the bad guy. And uh, it's Jubal Early all over again. Uh, General Kelly is Jubal Early. And then she goes on, quote, What's so strange about this statement is how closely it tracks or resembles the view of the Civil War that the South had finally got the nation to embrace by the early 20th century, almost like they had to dupe the rest of the country into believing this, uh, that the, the North was so stupid that they were going to buy whatever the South was selling. Uh, that's a little strange because really the narrative that, uh, that came out of the war, if you look at some of the people that were writing about the war after it, the dominant position came from the North, and Southerners were highly critical uh, of that position, and they've considered themselves to be in the minority, that they, their view wasn't really getting out there. Uh, but even these Northerners, you look at the Northern view, and she goes on, it's the Jim Crow version of the causes of the Civil War. I mean, it tracks all the major talking points of this pro-Confederate view of the Civil War. This is her quote. Okay, so let's, let's dissect this for a second. The leading figure in pushing uh, the Jim Crow, quote-unquote Jim Crow version of the causes of the war, uh, were people like William Archambault Dunning, who wasn't even a Southerner, right, uh, with, with his view of Reconstruction. Or how about uh, Rhodes, who wasn't even a Southerner either? Uh, James Ford Rhodes uh, wasn't even a Southerner. Highly, I mean, of course, now, he would say that uh, you know slavery was front and center, and people were saying that. Uh, and even some Southerners were saying that. Well, I mean, it's it's, but they were looking at it as an issue that led to the conflict, not the actual conflict itself. And if you study enough American history, that becomes very clear. So these people that are saying that uh, this is just stupid people that say this, I think they're the stupid people because obviously they're not examining American history from the beginning of the ratification of the Constitution up to 1861. Because if you do that you'll realize that these, these, these differences between North and South were fairly long-standing, even going back to the colonial period. So obviously, um, they're, they're a little mistaken about this, this long view of the war thing and how this war came about. Certainly, slavery was an issue. I did a podcast on that. Why slavery? And in fact, Blight gets to that near the end of the piece, but it's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of swept aside or you know, minimized in, in what he's really getting at there. So anyways... Uh, you've got the you've got the standard attack. This is the Jim Crow version of the causes of the Civil War. What's interesting about that quote is that uh, a long time ago, C. Van Woodward, in his book *The Strange Career of Jim Crow*, pointed out that actually the Jim Crow laws came out of the North, uh, and that uh, the North was just as racist as the South, and that they didn't have to be duped into believing this stuff because they already believed it. In fact, when you look at the soldiers who fought in the war. And James McPherson, one of their own, has, has written about this and for Calls and Comrades, that most northern uh, soldiers were not fighting to end slavery. They could care less about it. In fact, most Americans could care less about slavery 
morally in particular. What they didn't want in the Western territories, which is what Eric Foner, who uh, Stephen Curry replaced, said in his book Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, which, by the way, was under the direction of Eugene Genovese, and then Foner ditched Genovese. But uh, what Foner said is that these, these Northerners were just as racist, if not more racist, than their southern counterparts. The reason they didn't want slavery in the territories is because they didn't want black people in the territories. They didn't want any labor competition. They didn't want black people out there. They didn't want slavery to compete with them. This was not some moral conundrum about slavery, as McCurry seems to insist was the issue here. Uh, And so... Uh, then you get uh, David Blight interjecting here, and um, uh, he, this, is, uh, this is his point. Now, we'll get back to McCurry in a second. We'll, we'll get into all this stuff. This is Blight. Quote, this is profound ignorance. That's what one has to say first, at least of pretty basic things about the American historical narrative, Blight said. I mean, it's one thing to hear it from Trump, who, let's be honest, just really doesn't know any history and has demonstrated over and over and over. But General Kelly has a long history in the American military. Okay, so... Where's the profound ignorance here uh, that uh, Kelly is saying, I mean, look, Lee's an honorable man. I think there's a lot of evidence to that effect. In fact, it, it's stronger on that side than the other side, even though Blight's going to insist that the best, quote-unquote, best biographies of Robert E. Lee, which is Elizabeth Brown Pryor in his mind, I'm sure that's what he's bringing up, which is a stupid biography. I've already taken that book apart, uh, would demonstrate that Lee really wasn't a good guy, uh, that uh, he was he was not an honorable man. He was a guy with a foot fetish and... Uh, uh, all kinds of other personal foils. Uh, he was just not uh, very uh, trustworthy or gentlemanly and all these other things, which is just complete hogwash. But, um, but that's, where, that's where Blight is going with that. And this is profor- profound historical ignorance is what he's getting at where Kelly said that there was, there was uh, ability to compromise that was not followed. And I'll get into that in a minute because Blight says that's simply not true. Nobody was willing to compromise then. Really? So, who, has the, who is the historical ignoramus? I think it's the Yale professor, not General Kelly. Uh, and so, Blight says that Kelly's argument is an old reconciliationist narrative about the Civil War, uh, which has just been exploded by historical research since. It has? Really? This is, gets back to the point of what is history. History is interpretation, it's, there, there's, there's very little fact in history. There's a lot of interpretation. And what we're looking at here is Blight and McCurry's interpretation of the past uh, in contrast to General Kelly's interpretation of the past. And um, this is the problem with it. Uh, we, we have a situation where uh, we have uh, an interpretation of the past that is at odds with another interpretation of the past. And um, I think that uh, when you look at what history is, uh, you can't say, now I could, Blight would say, well, there is truth. Well, right, there is truth. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the truth. Let's not say, though, that uh, there's some objective narrative out there about the South or about the North in this particular period of time. There isn't. There isn't. So McCurry, uh, McCurry said then, It was not about slavery. It was about honorable men fighting for honorable causes, McCurry said. Well, what was the cause? In 1861, they were very clear on what the causes of the war were. The reason there was no compromise possible was that the people in the country could not agree over the wisdom of the continued and expanding enslavement of millions of African Americans. This is a half-truth at best. A half-truth at best. It depends on, first of all, which state you're looking at. 
to what the causes of the quote-unquote war were. If you're talking about Virginia, the cause of the war was that Lincoln decided to march 75,000 troops into the South. That caused the war. If Lincoln didn't do that, there's no war. If Lincoln didn't decide to provision Fort Sumter, which was actually argued against by his cabinet for weeks, Winfield Scott saying this is dumb, so they sacked Winfield Scott and got him out of the way, and then ended up using his anaconda plan anyways. Uh, if Lincoln had been willing to compromise, there would have been no war. I, I actually, this this is just uh, you know, the idea. There was no compromise possible that the people in the country cannot agree. No, no, no. The problem was Lincoln wouldn't compromise. The Republicans wouldn't compromise. And so I'm going to get into Blight, what he says in a, in a, in a second here, and, and talk about how stupid David Blight is. Uh, but anyways, uh, there was there was no disagreement uh, or, or, or you say there's no compromise possible over the wisdom of the continued and expanding enslavement of millions of African Americans. No, that wasn't the issue. The expansion of slavery was certainly an issue, but the continued enslavement, nobody was talking about that. Very small percentage of the population was even concerned about the plight of slaves in the South. A very small percentage. In fact, abolitionists were run out of town in the North. They weren't even welcome. So... How is this the big issue? Again, it's placing an issue and placing more importance on an issue that really to most Americans wasn't that important. And that was the continued enslavement of, if you want to use those terms, or we'll just say continued slavery because I'm not going to use their stupid terms, slavery in the South. Very few people in the country were even concerned about that. They were talking about why slavery, and this is Michael Holt. He's saying, look, this is a political conflict. On one side, you have the Republicans who are saying, we don't want black people in the territories. Why? Because that's going to give them more states. And it's going to make sure that these states vote Republican. Uh, or, on the other side, the South wants to have slave states because they think that's going to add to their electoral college total. This had always been the issue. Always. It was always about power. It was never about the morality of slavery, the plight of slaves, that wasn't the issue. It was always about, always, even in Philadelphia in 1787, it was always about power. If you read the debates in Philadelphia, it's very clear that's what it's about. It's about power. And this is all this was about, too. If, this, if the North could bottle the South up, they could ensure, theoretically, that they would dominate the government. Now, there's some question as that whether that would happen. And if the South actually jumped the gun, and I'll get into that in a second, the South could still possibly have controlled the government. But we know that 60% of the American population would have been interested in compromise because Abraham Lincoln only got 39.4% of the popular vote. So certainly, 60% of the country was more interested in the quote-unquote Southern position than the Republican position. 60%. And so let me get into these compromises. And here comes the dumb butt David Blight. Quote, any serious person who knows anything about this, already he's making a personal attack, so I guess I'm not serious, can look at the late 1850s and then the secession crisis and know that they tried all kinds of compromise measures during the secession winter, and nothing worked. Nothing was viable. Well, why is that, Dr. Blight? Why was nothing viable? Well, let me explain to you why nothing was viable. The South was certainly willing to compromise. In fact, the Committee of 13, which was established to sift through all the compromise proposals, received support. From the Southern delegation. In fact, Jefferson Davis, who headed up that committee, made a rule. 
And here was the rule. Any compromise proposal must have the support of the eight Democrats, the majority of the eight Democrats, and the majority of the five Republicans on the committee. And so when the Crittenden Compromise was put forward to the committee, which was agreeable to the South, but not to the Republican Party, Davis and Toombs switched their votes and voted against it because the Republicans would not vote for it. Why would the Republicans not vote for it? Well, again, because of political power. They know that if the slavery issue dies, their whole entire party dies. And not because of the morality of slavery, but because if the slavery issue is off the table for Western expansion, the Republican Party ceases to exist, and these people are all out on their butts the next election cycle. It's about power. So there were certainly compromise measures that the majority of the American public would have supported. I think it's very clear the Crittenden Compromise would have had the support of the American public, but the Republicans, led by Abraham Lincoln, said, no, 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 we're not going to compromise on this. We're not going to compromise on this issue. In fact, Lincoln is writing to people, don't compromise. Don't do it. Don't compromise at all. This is like FDR before he takes office, refusing to work with Herbert Hoover because he wants to be the, the guy riding in in the white car, saving the day with the white suit. We're going to save the day. I'm going to be the guy that does it. We're not going to let the other guy get any credit for this. So Abraham Lincoln, no, 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 no compromise on this. We're not going to compromise on the extension of slavery in the territories, which if you look at the Crittenden Compromise, I mean, one of the things was they were going to extend the Missouri Compromise line. The South was fine with that. Uh, they were going to add an amendment to the Constitution, which would have not allowed the general government to abolish slavery, which was a stupid amendment anyways, because the general government couldn't abolish slavery unless they amended the Constitution to do it. This is the whole point. Uh, the general government had no control over slavery, and even Lincoln said this. I, I, have, I have no desire to abolish slavery in the states where it already exists. That's not a problem. So really was, and this is Abraham Lincoln saying this, not Jefferson Davis, is there really an attack on slavery? Some people would say that slavery was never better protected in the Union than it was in 1860 when South Carolina seceded. So here's McCurry again. All of these compromises were about creating division where slavery already existed and where for a time they conceded that the Constitution shackled them in their ability to attack it, McCurry said. This is an interesting quote. All of these compromises were about creating division where slavery already existed and where for a time they conceded that the Constitution shackled them in their ability to attack it. Well, well, this is true. But then she says, before the war, the strategy for dealing with slavery was to contain it. It was? Um, well, maybe for the Republicans, but uh, Americans had compromised over and over again and allowed slavery to expand. In fact, it had expanded so much that there were a whopping 20 slaves in the Western territories uh, where slavery was legal in 1860. Wow, 20 slaves, and those Southerners are going to war for 20 slaves! By 1860, she said the North's economic success and expanding population, the South's lost representation in national politics put slavery. Where did, where did the South lose representation? Uh, they, they certainly uh, were now in the political minority, but they weren't losing reputation. They just weren't gaining anymore. The election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860 allowed Southern slaveholders who had $4 billion in wealth in the form of enslaved people, McCurry said, to argue that slavery was imminent. So, yes, there were people saying, well, I mean, this is the writings on the wall. If Lincoln's elected, we're going to lose slavery. And certainly, uh, you, you, I mean, you can't deny that that was the case for certain people in the South. 
But then she goes on, and this is where she gets really stupid. In 1861, compromise wasn't possible because some Southerners just wanted out. So there, she's blaming this on the South. They wanted a separate nation where they could protect slavery into the indefinite future. Really. Uh, first of all, compromise wasn't possible because Lincoln wouldn't compromise. Not because some Southerners wanted out. There was only one state out of the Union in December of 1860. One state. The rest of the South was willing to compromise. One state. And in fact, South Carolina probably would have come back into the Union if compromise had been reached. It wasn't the South that was rejecting compromise. It was the North. So there was compromise possible. This is why people like Avery Craven and James Randall call this entire generation the blundering generation because they blundered in the war. This is entirely correct. This is McCurry again. Quote, that's what they said when they seceded. That's what they said in their constitution when they wrote one. They did. I've read the Confederate Constitution many, many, many times. Um... The interesting thing about it is that, yes, the general government, the Confederate Constitution, could not abolish slavery. But they say nothing about the states being able to abolish slavery. In fact, it's just like the U.S. Constitution. The states could abolish, the states could abolish slavery all they wanted. The general government could not, but the states could. But even that was up to debate because uh, in 1864, Jefferson Davis promised the British government that they would recognize the Confederacy and give aid that the, they would abolish slavery. Hmm. Well, sounds like they wanted to have slavery into the indefinite future, doesn't it, Stephanie McCurry? I don't know. I mean, this is, this is talking point nonsense that we're getting here with these two esteemed Harvard, I'm sorry, two esteemed uh, Yale and Columbia Ivy League professors. Uh, and then Blight says this, quote, uh, Kelly's framework is, quote, also rooted, frankly, in a lost cause mentality that swept over American culture in the wake of the war. Swept over Northerners, Blight said. This idea that good and honorable men of the South were pushed aside and exploited by the fanatical, ironically, first Republican Party. Well, that's actually true, uh, Blight. Um, and it wasn't really a lost cause mentality that swept over America, swept over Northerners. No, Northerners already believed that. The Republican Party... Didn't even have, I mean, look, it had 55% of the vote in 1864. 55% of the vote in the North in 1864. So, yes, it was in the majority, but when, by the time the South comes back in, it's not even in the majority anymore if you don't disfranchise people, which is what happened. And yes, good and honorable men of the South were pushed aside by and exploited by the fanatical, ironically, first Republican Party. This is exactly what happened, particularly during Reconstruction. Good and honorable men of the North were also pushed aside by the fanatical First Republican Party when you had uh, 30,000 people arrested for opposing the Lincoln administration, when you had people trying to vote through cross bayonets, when you had ballots stuffed in ballot boxes and Democrat ballots taken out. Yeah, yeah, that's the Republican Party in the North doing things that they would do in the South when the war was over. Uh, that is the fanatical and corrupt first Republican Party. Uh, but Northerners didn't have to buy this because they already believed it. They already recognized, Joshua Chamberlain already recognized the valor of Southern soldiers, the value, valor of Southern men. This wasn't something that uh, you know he had to be uh, coerced to accept. But of course, that's what David Blight is getting into. Again, David Blight... Um, 
just is way off point here, as as normal, as usual. Uh, Blight also noted that Lee simply wasn't defending his home state of Virginia against northern aggression. This is what the piece goes on to say. Quote, this is Blight. Of course we yearn for compromise. We yearn for civility. We yearn for some common ground, he added. But look, Robert E. Lee was not a compromiser. He chose treason. Now, this is a stupid statement. Robert E. Lee did not commit treason because the South was out of the Union. I've already gotten into this. I mean, I don't have to get into the idea of secession. I just did that in the last podcast. Uh, And uh, this is just a stupid position based on stupid ideas and a stupid understanding of the Constitution. Uh, Blight, for all of his esteemed learning, doesn't really know much about the U.S. Constitution. So we'll just skip on over that because I've already done all that. And then he goes on, the best of the Lee biographies, which he's saying is the prior uh, biography, which is not the best biography, shows that Lee was a Confederate nationalist. He knew what he was fighting for. Yeah, for for Virginia. Uh, (laughs) He did know. He was fighting for Virginia. (laughs) He was fighting for independence. He made that clear to his men uh, in September of 1861. But I guess that doesn't matter. Um, So anyways... Uh, And then both historians, though, held particular disdain for the idea that putting state over nation was the essence of the fight. Blight says, my God, where does he get that from? (laughs) That denies the very reason to be the essential reason for the existence of the original Republican Party, which formed in the 1850s to stop the expansion of slavery and ended up developing a political ideology that threatened the South because they really were going to cordon off slavery. Is that why the Republican Party was formed? I mean, they were, they were trying to stop the extension of slavery into the territories for free white men so that these white guys who, I mean, these racist white guys could not have any black people in the territories. Not because they didn't really, they were anti-slavery in that they didn't want any competition from it. It could stay in the South all day long. They didn't care because they didn't want their, they didn't want, I mean, look, Eric Foner, the communist, Makes this point. Uh, and, then, and then he says, this idea that state came first? No, it didn't! With an exclamation point, he said. The northern people rallied around stopping secession. This comment is so patently wrong. Hmm. Again, 60% of the American population in 1860 voted against Abraham Lincoln. 60%. And uh, if you take into account the fact that 45% of the North was opposed to the war, that's just looking at 1864, 45% of the North was opposed to the war. We don't know what that percentage was when we start looking at you know, the early days of the war, but we know by 1864, 45% was against the war. I mean, we can, we can honestly say that by looking at the vote against Lincoln, and that uh, by crushing majorities, the South... Uh, was uh, accepted secession, then we can say the majority of the American people were in favor of the state. And yes, they were trying to stop secession. The, the, the majority, not all, this, this, this quote makes you think that all Northerners were against secession. That's simply not true. There are many of them that weren't and favored peaceful secession over coercion. Many of them. So again, Blight, I, I don't know what planet he's from, where he gets his history from, but obviously not from anything that you know, 
Maybe he gets it from Yale. I mean, because they, uh, if you've watched his lectures, they're pretty awful. Uh, I mean, it, look, if I had to take David Blight in a class, I'd sleep the entire time. They're that bad. Uh, and then McCurry. It's one thing to say Lee chose state over country. What Kelly says that is that was his country. That would be news to 350,000 Union war dead. Uh, well, I mean, Jefferson said Virginia was his country. Uh, Lee said that uh, Virginia was his country. And the Confederacy was his country. Uh, and uh, the Union war dead were invading Lee's state. So they can say that's their country all they want, but they don't live there. <laughs> I mean, this is just such a stupid argument. Uh, I, I, sometimes I can't even comprehend where these, where these imperialists come from, because that's essentially what they're saying. That's my land. It's like me saying California is my land. This land is your land. This land is my land. No. You live in California, that's your land. I don't have any claim to that. I claim where I live. That's not my land. It's, it's this idea that you know the United States has to be so big and that anything in here is mine. It's mine. No. And then Blight goes on. It's so abs- just so absurd. Wringing his hands, I'm sure. It's just so sad. It's just so disappointing that generations of history have been written to explode all of this. And yet millions of people, serious people, experienced serious people, and now people with tremendous power have grown up believing all of this. It's just so absurd. It's just so sad. It's just so disappointing. <laughs> I mean, it's, you can't even. You couldn't even write uh, a parody, a satire that would be this whiny. You couldn't do it. This is what we have: whiny little hand wringing academics. There was, however. A small silver lining, according to the esteemed author of the piece, Philip Bump. Now, again, you couldn't make a better last name for this guy up. Philip Bump. Uh, I mean, come on. Okay, I'm not even going to go there. But Philip Bump thinks there's a silver lining. This Trump-era ignorance and misuse of history is forcing historians, and I think this is a good thing, to use words like truth and right or wrong, Blight said. In the academy, we get very caught up in relativism and wherever we can be objective and so on, and that's a real argument. But there are some things that are just not true, and we've got to point that out, like your stupidity. I've got to point out your stupidity, David Blight, because that's what the point of this podcast is. But anyways, so uh, you look at some of the things. I mean, all the things they've said in this particular piece, and I've gone into some of the issues here and, and some of the things that they just get entirely wrong. Yet this is in the Washington Post. The Washington Post didn't reach out to anybody else and ask, uh, what was General Kelly? They just go to Blight and McCurry. They didn't go to anyone else and say, well, you know, give us your side of the story. How could this actually be accurate? Dwight Eisenhower had a portrait of Robert E. Lee when he he was in the Oval Office. He had a portrait of Robert E. Lee, and they asked him, how can you have a guy like that? And he said, well, look, because Robert E. Lee was a great man. This is all General Kelly is saying. He was a great man, a great American. He... We, we think he was wrong about secession now, but that does not diminish who he was as a man. This is Dwight Eisenhower. Now, of course, Blight and McCurry would say, well, Eisenhower was reared on the Lost Cause, and so uh, he, he, was, he was lied to. Everybody had to believe that. No, no, that's because Americans 
didn't weren't forced to believe it. It was true, right? It was true. Uh, the whole idea, uh, and you look at the the conflict over between the North and South, going back to when we had Cavaliers and Puritans, and the cultural conflict there, and then you get to the Constitutional Convention where it was pointed out, look, we've got North and South, and I'm not too certain these things really need to be in a union together. And it wasn't just about slavery. It was about economy and views of society and other things. I don't know if we really should be in a union together. I mean, that's, that's a discussion. Uh, and the fact that Connecticut and South Carolina are willing to compromise at one point, the fact that Southerners wanted to count slaves as one whole person towards representation because, as George Mason pointed out, they knew that the North would pass what they called navigation laws, and that would mess up the South economically, the fact that they could tax the South out of existence. These are real questions. Yeah, I agree. And then you keep going forward, and you keep talking about Northerners pushing for secession first because they were the political minority, uh, they just never had the, the stones to pull it off. That's the issue here. They never had the stones to pull it off. The South actually did it. So everyone thought secession was legal in the founding generation. Uh, and, and I'll have to do something else with that. And actually, I'm going to hint. There is going to be a tease. There is, I am doing something with that. And if you do listen to this podcast, you're going to want to get in on it. Uh, I'll have more information about that probably within a week at the most. Uh, so you're going to want to know about that. Uh, it's going to be awesome. And you're going to want it. Uh, so, uh, but th- the whole point of this is that, you know, serious people, experienced people do know the truth, Blight, and it's not your truth. Your truth is stupidity. Uh, your truth is interpretation. Uh, so we've been, we, we've understood the truth for generations. It's just now you people are messing it all up. But anyways, I hope you enjoyed this version of the, this, I should say this episode of the Brian McClanahan show. I'll see you next time.